You're listening to Legally Bliss Conversations. This podcast reclaims and rewrites the stories female attorneys have been told about how we should practice law, grow our businesses, treat our clients, treat ourselves, and craft our identities as female attorneys. We'll hear inspiring stories from current and former female attorneys, the ones who question the stories they've been told, the ones who aren't afraid to live boldly and step into their own power. We'll learn from women who define success on their terms. Through lighthearted and curious conversation, we'll unpack the challenges these inspiring female attorneys have already navigated. So join me on this journey. You'll be empowered and ready to rewrite a completely new story about what is possible for you. Welcome everyone to Legally Bliss Conversations. I am so happy to have Heather Hansen with us today. Heather Hansen gives her clients the tools to advocate for themselves, their ideas, and those around them. She's been a trial attorney for over 20 years and was consistently named one of the top 50 female attorneys in Pennsylvania. Heather uses her psychology degree and her years in the courtroom to help her clients ask for what they want and get it. She's also an anchor at the Long Crime Network and has appeared on NBC, Fox News Channel, CNN, MSNBC, CBS, and Sirius Radio. Heather has helped thousands of keynote audience members in Kuwait, Ireland, Mexico, and across the U.S. become their own best advocates. Heather is the author of the bestseller, The Elegant Warrior, How to Win Life's Trials Without Losing Yourself, which Publishers Weekly calls a template to achieving personal and career goals. And she's the host of The Elegant Warrior podcast. Heather's latest book is Advocate to Win, 10 Tools to Ask for What You Want and Get It. I love it. (laughs) Welcome, Heather. I'm so, so happy that you're, that you're here with me. So thank you so much for joining me. Oh my gosh, Susie, it's my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. Love talking to lawyers. Awesome. <laughs> I'm sure you've talked to a few in your life, right? Yes, a lot of many, many, whether it's talking to, arguing with, or <laughs> having a drink with. Yes, I've done all of the above. You've done all of the above. I love it. Okay, so why did you go to law school? Um, I went to law school because I knew that I wanted to speak in front of crowds. So when I was a kid, I loved um, theater and I probably wanted to be an actress. And then as I grew up, sort of got that impression that that wasn't the best way to make a living. And when I made, when I went to college, I majored in psychology and I thought for a while that I would be a forensic psychologist, but that would not have kept me in the sort of doing the public speaking that I love so much. And Mm -hmm. so law was an opportunity to combine psychology because there's so much of psychology in what we do and speaking in front of um, an audience of the jurors. I love it. So what made you decide to do that transition though? Like you had psychology, right? As your major. And then was there like kind of a, I don't know, like something that lit like a fire under you? Did you observe someone or you just wasn't? I wouldn't say so much that anything that lit a fire under me. I spent a summer um, when I was still in college at a law firm in Pennsylvania. So I went to undergrad in DC. I went to work at a firm in Pennsylvania just for a few weeks. And I was really lucky that that firm did medical malpractice defense. And so that I thought was really interesting, like learning about the body, understanding the doctors, getting to really interact with people. And so that aspect of it. But I didn't go to law school with a fire to be a lawyer. I don't know... I don't know 
that I ever had a fire to be a lawyer. I had a fire to yeah. win my cases, but I don't know that I ever had a fire to be a lawyer. Yeah. Well, I don't, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. So when you first started practicing, like if you think back to kind of those first years, what, when you first started practicing, is there like any advice that you would give your like young, like Heather, like right out of law school in a law firm? Because I feel like a lot of women are kind of looking for that, right? Like they're looking for that guidance or that female mentor. What would you tell your, your younger self? I think that I did something that I would tell most women to do, and that is to get as much courtroom experience as you can. Mm -hmm. So I was in a in medical malpractice defense, you bill by the hour, and I could not bill for going to trial with my mentor. So I went to trial with my mentor every day that he was on trial. And then I made up the hours on nights and weekends. And, you know, these days people talk about like, you know, work-life balance. I don't think there's such a thing. I didn't have one, but I knew that I wanted to be in the courtroom trying cases. And I knew the only way that I would get to do that is by having some experience doing that. And I knew that I could never bill for that. So I was never going to get that experience. So throughout law school, I worked at my firm and soon after passing the bar, I tried my first case because because I had had so much experience during those years, but it meant for a lot of work. I was working, I was going to school and I was making up hours in the time that I would spend in the courtroom, but it was completely worth it. Mm -hmm. So what inspired your books? Um, the first book, The Elegant Warrior, was inspired by the feeling that I had for the longest time in my career that, and I tell this story in the book, it's a story where I was an attorney and I was taking a deposition. In my cases, I re represent doctors when their patients sued them. And this particular patient had cystic fibrosis, which caused him a lot of pain and the pain caused him a lot of anxiety. And so he had gone to the hospital and he had told the doctor he was taking a certain amount of anti-anxiety medication. The doctor gave him a different amount of anti-anxiety medication, according to him, and he had a seizure that broke five of his vertebrae. Mm. He said he told the doctor he was taking a large amount of anti-anxiety medications. My doctor, who I represented, said no. He told me he was taking about half that, and the medical records had a similar number, and so we knew that there was sort of a difference in uh, recollection here, and so I had to go take his deposition. And when I went to take his deposition, he was in a ton of pain and he kept running to the bathroom and getting sick. And then he'd come back and we couldn't get through three questions. We had to end the deposition. We came back another day and the same thing was happening. And so I looked at him, I got like to eye level and I said, what can I do to help you? How can I make this easier so we can get through this deposition? And he said, oh, these boots, I'm so sweaty. I have these boots on. I feel like if I didn't have my boots on, I would be more comfortable. And I looked at his feet and he was wearing those big, thick Timberland boots with the big, thick laces. So I thought I can handle this. And I got down on my hands and knees and I untied his boots and he pushed and I pulled <laughs> off came the boots, got the deposition and it was fine. About a year later, when we went to trial, I had seen that his deposition, his testimony contradicted what my doctor said, what the nurses said, what was in the medical records. And so my job was to cross-examine him on that. Mm -hmm. And I was getting ready to cross-examine him at trial. It was right before, after the lunch break. He came over to me with his mother and he said, mom, this is that nice lady I told you about, the one who was so kind to me when I was in pain. And she put her arms around me and gave me a big hug. And she said, thank you so much for being so kind to my son. And then he went up to testify. 
And the stories we tell about trials are war stories and the rooms where we prepare for trial are war rooms and we are warriors in the courtroom. And I had a job to do. And so I cross-examined him and it was really effective. And I knew that I'd won. When I walked away that day, Susie, I knew we had won the case. It, the verdict hadn't come in, but I knew. But I went to my car and I cried because who was I? Was I the elegant woman who gets down on her hands and knees to help a man in pain? Or was I the warrior who attacked his story in the courtroom? And that's the basis of the elegant warrior, the idea that we are all, everyone, not just lawyers, it's written for the layman, but especially mm -hmm. lawyers, we are constantly walking that tightrope between mm -hmm. our elegance, whatever we choose that to be, and the warrior part of us. And how do we walk that in a way that feels true to us? And that's what that first book is all about. Yeah. I mean, having that balance is challenging. So how do you define elegance? Like what is elegance to you as a human and as a lawyer? So for me, they're the same. And the root, I'm very much into words. I think the words that we use are really important. In fact, I remember as a young attorney, I once objected and said, words are important, which is not an, uh, a valid objection. <laughs> but you know, the lawyer was like changing words and every word matters. And I so do. whenever I use a word, I like to know not just the definition, but the word origin, where does the word come from? Because I think that's where the magic is. The root of the word elegance is to choose. And so I think your elegance is what you choose it to be. For some people, it's lipstick and earrings. That was my grandmother's elegance for, and she was a big impact in my life. For others, it's sweatpants and messy buns. And for some people, it's being very aggressive in the courtroom. And for other people like me, it's less aggressive and more, um, more building relationships with my client, with even the patient, with the jury. And so it's not so much that an elegance has one meeting. It's what you choose it to be. And then the hard part is staying true to that choice when things get hard and contentious. Mm, that's beautiful. So how do women exude elegance and kind of strength, right? At the same time, like that warrior, um, I don't know if it's necessarily a mentality or how we present ourselves. I almost feel like we're we're our kind of our own worst enemies in some ways. Like we're highly critical of ourselves and other women. <laughs> I've seen this a lot, yeah. um, but you know, I'm wondering like, how does, how do women do this? Right. Like, is, are there any, like, give any little tips for women and how we can properly kind of balance this? Well, I think that you have to choose how you want to be. You know, I, when I work with when I work with women, the first question I ask is, "What are you willing to advocate for?" You know, do you want to advocate for more money, a promotion, a better job, starting your own business? You know, what are you willing to advocate for? And who do you want to be as you advocate? Because for some women, they want to be the raging witch who comes into the courtroom and is super aggressive. And, and that's fine. If that's what you choose to be, then choose it and do it, but don't do it by accident. You know, know that you're choosing. And so I think for women, a lot of times they're not choosing, especially my generation, I'm going to be, I'm 49 years old and my generation, I think many of the women thought they had to act like men. And so, and things are a little bit different now. I do think that women can be women, can embrace those, and I'm putting air quotes for those of you listening, those feminine qualities of empathy, compassion, um, nurturing, love, 
curiosity, all creativity, all of those things that you can still embrace those. And in fact, be an even more impactful lawyer, but a lot of it is being conscious about it and intentional about it and know that you're choosing not only globally, like I'm going to choose this part of my elegance, but also in the moment when things get hard and the other attorney is yelling at you and the jury's looking at you and you want to be reactive to be able to take a step back and be more responsive and stay true to that choice. So mm -hmm. I think that for women to recognize that if you are choosing to be all warrior, that is a choice, but every choice has consequences. Mm -hmm. And you do give up some of the benefits of embracing your femininity if you make that choice. So what is like benefits of embracing your femininity? What does that look like? Like I am a big fan of women embracing their femininity. I, I totally see what you're see, saying about women. You know, we kind of in certain generations, like we're in the work, the workforce now, there are those air quotes again. Um, and, you know, maybe we have feel like have, we have to act more like men, but what is embracing femininity to you? For me, it, it runs the entire gamut. Like I, one of the things that I, um, I'm very serious about and have been since I started being a lawyer is I may have to take the patient's story, but I will never take their dignity. Mm. So when I cross-examine, especially a patient, a, you know, the experts are a little bit easier to get warrior on because they're <laughs> yeah. paid. And so, you know, you can sort right. of go in for the, but with a patient, you know, most of the time they believe their story and it's yeah. two competing stories in the courtroom. Right. And so my job is not to make that patient a puddle on the floor or to embarrass them or to try to take away their dignity. I think your dignity is inherent in you and I could never actually do that, but I don't try to do that. I just try to show the jury that the story isn't true, but I don't try to attack the person. And I think that that's a feminine approach. My mentor used to have me cross-examine almost all of the women because I handled them in a much more feminine way. Another example is I was at a deposition one time, I was taking the patient's deposition and opposing counsel said to the patient as we started, you will think Heather's your friend. She's not your friend. But it's not, it's not that I was trying to be pretending to be their friend. It right, was right. true interest, true compassion, true empathy, true seeing things from their perspective. And that was effective and it scared him, which is why he tried to warn her not to let me sort of do that. But mm -hmm. because I would connect with his clients in a way that sometimes maybe even he didn't. And then the last example of this that I'll, I'll share with you is, um, I once tried a case many, many times I've tried cases where I'm the only female. And in my cases, there's often multiple defendants. So in this case, the patient was a man, a middle-aged man. His attorney was a middle-aged man. There were four doctors named in the case, all middle-aged men, four attorneys, all middle-aged men, except for me. And as lawyers know, one of the dirty secrets of trial law is that jurors often fall asleep. And in this case, the jurors were falling asleep, but they would wake up every time I spoke. And it wasn't because I was smarter. It wasn't because I had better questions. It was because my voice sounds different. And that is an advantage. And there's so many things like that that we have as advantages. And if we try to be men and take on male voices and take on male personas, we are losing out on those differences that actually could serve us and allow us to win. In that particular case, the jury found everybody, including the plaintiff, 
negligent except for my doctor. Now that wasn't just because of my voice, but the fact that they were waking up when I spoke couldn't have hurt. So you want to take every advantage you can get. Let's take a quick pause for a message from my sponsor, Prominent Practice. Are you thinking about a career transition from big law or partnership to a solo practice, selling your practice, or maybe you're launching a project unrelated to law? Whatever the reason for your transition, you'll need support along the way. Enter Prominent Practice, an executive consulting and marketing firm specializing in branding, positioning, and reputation management for transitioning attorneys. Founded by a female entrepreneur who spent a decade building smart digital platforms for thought leaders before pivoting to focus on high-end service providers who were preparing for successions, mergers, and acquisition events in their businesses. If you're thinking about making a big business move, don't risk losing the ability to leverage the reputation you've spent your career building. Let Prominent Practice be your guide. Visit prominentpractice.com slash blist for an exclusive introduction. Do you think we're better storytellers at the end of the day? Um, I don't think that that's, I think that storytelling is inherent in all of us. You know, I think that that's something that goes back generation by generation. And I think that in the cavemen days, the men were sitting around the fire telling stories of hunting and and women were telling stories of gathering. So I don't (laughs) think it's that. But one of the things I often say is facts tell, stories sell, right? That's a very common thing to say. Advocates win. So in the courtroom, there's competing stories. Outside of the courtroom, there's competing stories. There's always competing stories. I coach women. I coach a lot of lawyers, but I also coach women who work at Google, women who are starting their own businesses. And if someone is trying to sell their product or their service, there's a competitor trying to sell a similar product or service, Mm -hmm. and they both have their stories. So Mm -hmm. the one that wins is the better advocate. So it's facts tell, stories sell, advocates win. And that's combining compassion, curiosity, creativity, perspective taking, credibility, all of these things, the words that you choose, the magic of you, your elegance to go beyond storytelling and tell your story in a way that's going to allow you to win. And I think that many of those things tend to be feminine qualities. Mm, Okay. I love that. And I was looking here at your contents of advocate to win. And you use a lot of those words, right? You use elegance and you mentioned words, perspective, questions, credibility, evidence, reception, presentation, negotiation, argument. I can't wait to read this book. Um, so let's talk about this book. This Would this book be considered sort of like the second part to your first book? So that book is very prescriptive. I had a lot of people, I have a lot of people who want to learn how to advocate. And so that book is, this is the primer on how to advocate that you want to, the first thing is elegance. You want to make that choice. What are you willing to advocate for? Who do you want to be? And then words, because the words we use matter. And in that chapter, I talk all about like choosing the words that are going to most resonate with your jury, because Mm -hmm. we all have our juries in the courtroom. Our jury's very plain. We see them sitting in the box, but if I am trying 
trying to get a promotion at work, my jury is my managers and my leaders. If I'm trying to get more resources at work, my jury might be my colleagues who have to support me in that. If I want to get my partner to do the laundry, he's my jury on that particular night. And so different words are going to resonate with different juries. So you want to use your words. And then the other, all the other tools that you just talked about, perspective, seeing things through your jury's perspective, because you can't change someone's perspective until you know it using yeah. questions, using evidence, using credibility. And then the reception and the presentation parts are presentation is the body language, the tone of voice, the facial expressions, but the reception is hearing tone of voice, hearing the words, reading body language and facial expressions, and then argument and negotiation are the last two. So all of those are the tools of an advocate that you can use in all aspects of your life. And this book is not just for lawyers. It sounds like. So oh no. Anyone could do this. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's actually, I, I coach and serve more non-lawyers than I do lawyers. I coach and serve women who work for LVMH, women who work for Google, many, many coaches, many people who are entrepreneurs. And so these tools are tools that they can all use as well. They all, everybody has their jury. And then in the book, I talk a lot about the first jury that we all have and lawyers for many of us, this is our toughest jury is our inner jury, which is the part of us that listens and chooses what to believe. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think that that's the judgmental part of us. And it's not, it's, you know, juries don't judge, they listen and choose, mm -hmm. you know? And so your inner jury is listening to all those voices in your head, choosing which voice to believe. And then that makes up your entire life. Mm. So you integrate a lot of this, I'm sure, into your coaching. I would love to know a little bit more about what your coaching practice looks like. I'm curious. So most of my coaching clients come to me after I have, I have, a, I have a podcast. So some of them come through my podcast. Some of them come through podcasts like this, but many of them come through my speaking engagements. So I give a lot of speaking engagements on globally, how to be an advocate and an advocate's job is to overcome doubts. So how to overcome your own doubts and then how to overcome other people's doubts so that you can ask for what you want and get it. And when women come to me for this, it is, I, I work with them on first thing I ask them is what do you want to advocate for? And what are you willing to advocate for? Because so many women want things that they're not willing to ask for. And so part of it is convincing the inner jury that they're, that they're able to ask. You know, I just, I just coached a woman this morning who I, when I ask her what she wants, she says she's unsure, but when we dive a little deeper, she knows what she wants. She just doesn't think she can get it. And that is a problem, right? We have to own what we want and at least give it the oxygen to see whether or not it's something that we want to advocate for instead of just shoving it back down. So the first week we do is that. And then we figure out once that we know what they want, once we know who they want to be as they advocate, then we identify who is your jury? Who do we have to persuade in order to get this thing that you want? It's always your inner jury first. And then we talk about the effective ways to ask for it and how to get it. And my clients have been really successful in advocating their way to their wins using these tools. I feel like that articulation of asking for what you want is some of one of the most challenging aspects. Um, why do you think some of us have such a hard time putting it out there and like just asking for what we want? I, th I think there's a couple of reasons, but, and before I tell you the reasons I want to give this, this really works for me as a lawyer. When I stand up in my closing, 
I want the jury, I, I defend doctors in medical malpractice cases. So I want them to say no to the first question, right? The first question is, do you find that the doctor was negligent? I want them to say no. Right. I show them the verdict sheet and I ask them for what I want. I don't infer it. I don't imply it. I don't dance around it. I say in my closing, and I want you to mark no to that first question. I would never assume that they know that that's what I want. So go through my argument and then sit down. And we as women, I think a couple things happen. I think that we think we have asked by our actions. So like I, I used to do this all the time. I would not ask for the raises that I wanted. I would think I have worked so hard. I have done such a good job. I have gone above and beyond. My pro bono is there. My work, I'm, I'm in the medical legal committee. I've done all these things. I shouldn't have to ask. They should know what I want because look how hard I've worked. And that's not fair. It's not fair to me because I'm not getting what I want. And it's not fair to my partners, my bosses, because they didn't know. I mean, it's still hard for me to believe. We women are so trained to know what people want and to try to know what they want and to give them what they want, that it's hard to believe that they didn't know I wanted raises, but how could they? And so I think that that's part of it. I think that we think we're asking by our actions. And it's the same thing at home. Like when you ask your partner to like put something away or do the laundry, but you don't ask, you don't say it would really mean a lot to me if you would do the laundry. You sort of say like, you know, the laundry's still there. Oh, I have to do the laundry. <laughs> like, like there's a million ways we say it rather than just asking for it. And mm -hmm. I think the asking makes us feel vulnerable. But the truth is that we are truly more vulnerable to being hurt when we don't ask for what we want. At least in the asking, we get information. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so like, what is a really practical tip or nugget for the lady or the woman out there listening who is afraid or afraid to ask her husband to do the laundry or is afraid, <laughs> hesitant to ask for the raise, right? Like how can we put ourselves in a better mindset in terms of asking for what we want? So the better example, the laundry example is a little bit harder because those are interpersonal relationships. And so I have yeah. to know more about the lady and her relationship with her partner, but let's talk about at work. I, when I start working with a woman for coaching, I send them, um, it would say Susie's evidence journal on the front. It's a, it's a journal. And I ask you every night, every night to write down at least three pieces of evidence of your strength, your talent, your experience, your passion, your recognitions, your, um, your wins. And it could be little things like I figured out how to use the zoom before we started. I figured out how to make the zoom microphone work through my earphones. Right. Right. That might be my only win today, Susie. And, and, it's, and it's a good win because for me, technology has notoriously been a challenge and I'm really good at it now because I had to be to start my business. But so that is a win because it's transferable. If I can figure out how to use the mic on the Zoom, then I can figure out how to start my email list and make that automated. And I can figure out how to upload my podcast to all of the places where I want it to be. So it's evidence of my ability to figure out tech. And it's the littlest things, you know, I work with a lot of women who have left the workforce to have kids and then they want to come back and they're like, I don't, I don't know how to do these things anymore. Well, yeah. for us, 
Have you mediated your kids' arguments? Because if you have, then you're serving as a mediator. Have you negotiated with your two-year-old to go to bed? Then you're negotiating. Write it down as evidence. And mm -hmm. so when you've done that after a year of work, it gives you a great way to start your, you know, if you do a memo to your partners about the reasons you deserve the raise. And it also just feeds, it helps your inner jury choose to believe that you should ask for that raise, that you quote unquote deserve that raise, that you have earned that raise. And so, but you've got to really make a point of looking every day for pieces of evidence. Cause some days you're going to think you don't have any, and it's really, you know, it's not enough. It's sort of like keeping your time. You know, I used to be very obsessive about keeping my time when I was billing time. And one of my very good friends, he would try to recreate it at the end of the month. And I would be like, Oh my God, there's, you've lost so much time. There's no way. And it's the same thing. If you try to recreate at the end of the month, your pieces of evidence every day, you're never going to remember them. So it doesn't have to be journaling in some formal way. It's like one, two, three. That's it. Some days it'll be 10. Some days you'll struggle to get three, but three is a good number. I love that. So you're, you like, you kind of recommend or teach at the end of the day to sit down and be very mindful about your wins and actually write them down sort of as part of your end of the day routine. Yep. And it doesn't have to take, you know, these are not five to 10 minutes. Five to 10 minutes. You know, put it in the notes on your phone as they happen. Like, you know, I, I, we are so busy and so many people are so overwrought with, you know, another thing on their calendar. And yeah. so it doesn't have to be another thing on your calendar. It just has to be something so that you don't forget. So it could be in the moment, like stick it in your phone, make it a separate section on your phone where you write down your wins for the day, but you want to make sure that you're documenting them because otherwise you will lose them. Right, right. And I think that just that process of being mindful about your win, right? Yeah. Like you said, it, it doesn't have to be super amazing or complex or complicated, just a, a single win. And it helps you be grateful and put, put you like in that mindset daily of looking for your wins. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, there's a difference between being grateful and being appreciative, right? Like, you were grateful to the higher power for giving us the skills to create our wins, but you created those wins. So appreciate yourself for having done that. But it's different than a gratitude journal, which I'm all for. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, I think gratitude is enormously helpful in making us happier and making us better and making us more compassionate. So I'm not saying no to that. But what I'm saying is women tend to say, I'm so grateful they gave me the raise. I'm appreciating that I earned the raise. I appreciate myself and all the work that went into that. And that's what the evidence journal is doing. It's making it so that you don't feel like you have to be grateful. I'm shaking the computer here. You're not feeling like you have to be grateful. It's that you appreciate what you have done to earn that thing. And you appreciate the skills and the talents and everything that you've grown to make it happen. I am so happy you made that distinction. And again, that's where words come are so important, right? They have meaning. So, yeah, I, I, uh, if people who are listening are into words, I, I, on, on Thursdays and I have a private podcast every other Thursday that comes out and, um, it's, it's free, but you have to sign up for it and I can, I'll send you the link to it, Susie. Yeah, yeah. But last week I, I always give a, a recommendation every time. And last week I need to look at my phone to share with you the recommendation. But if you're into words, this recommendation is the best thing ever. It's the online 
It's called ETYM online. So it's etymology of words. So it's really great. Like when you're talking about grateful versus appreciative to put those words in there, it's an app and it will tell you the root of those words to be really aware of the words that we're using. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting that you were talking about just how like our perception, everyone's perception of a situation is so different, right? Like you you see this all the time, like you're mentioning, you know, even someone in court, like they think that their story is the truth, right? And how they're conveying it, they, they may think it's the truth. But I think it's so important to really dig into like when, when you are explaining something, especially super important that, you know, context matters and the language matters and each individual word matters. And maybe because we're lawyers, right? Like we, we appreciate that, you know, we are very honed into that, but I think that in like a lot of facets of life, like that can apply to people and could help eliminate and alleviate a lot of confusion because people seem to be talking past each other. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and but at the end of the day, it could be, it could come down to something as simple or as complex as just words really just meaning something a little different to different people. So, um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And I think that one of the gifts for me of being a trial attorney and not all trial attorneys have leaned this way, but I certainly have, I can see every side Mm -hmm. of a argument. So mm-hmm. like, for example, in the courtroom, some of my clients would get upset with me. They call me chicken little. Cause I'd be like, what about this? What about this? I could always see it from the other side, which is what made us better because then we'd be prepared for every argument. But yeah. when I do television, sometimes I will comment on legal stories in the news and they'll say, which side do you want to take? And I, I often say it doesn't matter because I can see both sides. I can see the arguments on both sides. And I think that that is unusual in this day and age. Most people want to grab one side and say that this is the only way, but I think that the only way that you can change someone's perspective, and it's not easy to change someone's perspective, but the only way you can do that is by first understanding theirs. You know, you can't, you can't change a juror's perspective if you don't know where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And so the ability to sort of, you know, understand that those words might mean something different to them. They see something completely different than what you see. And once you recognize that and see what they see, then you can speak to it effectively. Mm, yeah. I love that. No wonder you're such a great advocate. Let me ask you, um, you've done so many amazing things already with your career. <laughs> So I'm a little bit hesitant to ask this, but I'm so curious at the same time, like what is next for you? Like you've published two amazing books. You're, you have a highly successful career. You're working with, you know, executives at, at high level. What's next for you? I want to, I mean, the dream is to reach as many women as possible and teach them to advocate for themselves because we are not notoriously good at it. And there's a lot of talk about it. Like you hear a lot about, oh, be your own best advocate, advocate for yourself, self-advocacy, but no one teaches you how, right? And we know how, you know, I have developed the five core competencies of an advocate and I teach on that and they are choice. That's that elegance piece, compassion, creativity, curiosity, and credibility. And then I have courses and content that support each one of those things. And so my dream is to reach as many women as possible and to give them the tools so that they can advocate for 
more money, more opportunity, better teams for each other, for their employees, for their children, and to do it effectively and in a way that allows them more wins. Mm, I love that. Heather, where can people find you? The best place to find me is my website is advocate to win. And there you'll see links. I have a podcast called the elegant warrior. You'll see links to buy my books. You know, there's a link there to sign up for that private podcast that I mentioned. So that sort of is the house, the home of all the things that I offer. This has been a beautiful conversation. I want to thank you so much for hanging out with me. I appreciate that so much, Susie. And I love what you're doing for female lawyers. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today on Legally Bliss Conversations. If you love this episode and you want to hang out with other inspiring and light gold female attorneys, be sure to join the Legally Bliss community at legallyblissed.com. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at Susie Nixon. See you next time.